the future has arrived. As the world and humanity itself moves faster and faster into unimaginable possibilities, old institutions that built connection and shaped our sense of meaning are falling by the wayside. In their wake, profound questions about ethics, our purpose, and spirituality demand new answers. Join your host, Scott Mason, in Season 2 of the Purpose Highway Podcast. We will explore how these social changes will revolutionize our society. We will learn how they impact our own search for connection and meaning. And we will hear stories of influencers whose lives have had radical change from the inside. And found profound connection to others and themselves through a new definition of meaning. The future has arrived. Are you ready? When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's NOLA, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's NOLA crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's NOLA's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's NOLA is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A dot com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's NOLA's website for yourself and find out how good it is. Welcome back to another episode of Scott Mason's Purpose Highway. And sitting with us in the front seat for the second episode in a row is Sophie Edwards, a digital marketer, SEO expert, copywriter, speaker, blogger, and drummist. Last time, Sophie and I talked about the interconnection of myth and nostalgia and how nostalgia can turn toxic, keeping us from connection with our own truth purpose, and freedom itself. Sophie, welcome back to the show. Turning a little bit back into some of the other things that you talked about earlier, and I wanted to go into a little bit more deeply and more head on. A prior guest on this show, one of the earliest ones, is one of the top sales trainers in North America, the genius Adrian Miller. And she follows me on LinkedIn and regularly comments on my posts, sometimes with questions that are quite uh, probing, and I appreciate that. And one of the things that she recently commented on as of the date of this recording, which is in December of 2021, uh, that I wanted to bring into this conversation was another type of toxic myth. Again, we've touched on it a little bit earlier. I'd like to dive more directly into it. She felt that one of the toxic myths that she as a cisgendered female has had to live with are the roles of women. Now, the sales professional population in this in the United States, I found out, uh, 
is statistically close to 90% male. And so Adrienne Miller, as a female, is very much an outlier. And it's no surprise then that she said these gender roles she felt really could be trapping. Now, she's someone that anyone who knows her can figure out quite quickly she doesn't let a lot trap her for long. But she's someone that has been able to dislodge toxic myths that about gender that are not necessarily um, able to be dislodged by a lot of people, at least without guidance. Your whole blog, both on Instagram and on video, relate to toxic myths relating to and regarding gender and the confines that they bring. Can you talk to me a little bit about the myths that you might have told yourself about gender growing up that you feel people might be struggling with and how that has changed your life and how you came to be able to dislodge them. Because I will say one other thing before I allow you to go into the answer and thank you for your patience with me. People sometimes have a lot of anxiety about dislodging toxic myths that are far less deeply rooted to their identity in the world. For instance, I had a hard time letting go of the myth that I was supposed to be a large organizational lawyer. I felt my entire social stature was depending on that, dependent on that, but I had to do it. And I eventually did. As much of a real struggle as that was, I would be an idiot to say that something like that would be the same as dislodging toxic myths about my gender identity. Well, I I, th- I think that's that's really interesting. Some of the b- b- before I get into that conversation, and I mean I, I could talk about this for days, but um, I, I I find it interesting that um, earlier on you referred to your process of going from C-suite executive to someone who felt like you had purpose in life, um, as a voluntary transformation. And then just now you said, I had to do it. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering to what extent you feel like your transformation was actually voluntary and at one, at what, to what extent you were just like, I, I have to do this. There's no other option. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. And I will go into that in some as briefly as possible. But it is a question I've never been asked before in this, on my own podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, we're, we're flipping the tables here now. I'm the interviewer. Right, exactly. only guess who's <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. I'm the interviewer uh, now. <laughs> I know. I want to talk about flipping the tables. <laughs> you know, I tell people that during my latter days in large organizational life, I felt like I was a being with no soul. I felt like I was a walking shell. Or if I would look in the mirror, what I would see in my eyes instead of humanity was a pure lava flow of anger and hatred and jealousy. I had nothing inside that was discernibly human. Of course, I presented in the world otherwise. Although, the truth would seep out every now and then. And Sophia wasn't pretty. So in a way, perhaps because it was comfortable living like that, I could have stayed that way. But ultimately, 
I felt maybe the inner consumption that was occurring. What little soul I had left fought to stay alive. And that's what compelled the change. I know exactly what you mean. Um, (laughs) yeah, it was, it was the same with me on, on the surface. My life was pretty great. I had a business doing something I loved. Um, I was making a decent living. I had a nice apartment in one of the most expensive cities in, in North America. Um, I was reasonably good looking. I was successful. I was confident. And yet not. Um, because even though I had what on the surface other people would have envied, it wasn't, it didn't feel fulfilling. It didn't feel encouraging or um, it wasn't what I needed my life to be. And, you know, I, I remember <laughs> it was early 2017 or 2018 or so. I don't, I don't remember what year. It doesn't really matter. Um, it was just after New Year's and I was, you know, setting my intentions for the year, setting some goals, thinking about what I wanted that year to be like. And in the back of my head, my mind had framed its resistance to my way of living as go ahead, set your goals, work toward your goals, meet them, don't meet them, who cares? You're not going to be happy and you know the reason why. And that's when it became apparent to me as well that I could not keep living the way I was living. It wasn't the worst life, but it wasn't me. It wasn't fulfilling. I didn't feel like myself. I felt like somebody else. You know, I I would look in the mirror myself and I didn't necessarily see the lava flow, but I remember staring at my face in the mirror and being like, how is that me? That's that, that, that's not me. This isn't right. That's not who I am. And yet it was, but it wasn't because it, it's, it's, it's weird to talk about identity because it was me, but it wasn't me, if that makes sense. Um, whereas now I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that's me, but not in a disbelief sort of way, but more a, holy shit, I actually did it sort of way. Do you look back on myths that you might've told yourself in your prior life about who you are, what you were supposed to be with any nostalgia? And do you also ever wonder with perhaps nostalgia or with a sense of loss 
about the possibilities that might have been there had you not chosen to live your life the way you ultimately chose to? Yeah, I do. I do. And um, I think I'm different from a lot of other trans people in that. So if you know anything about transness, you probably have heard the term gender dysphoria before. Um, it's the idea of feeling dysphoric um, in your own body, right? A feeling, um, some, it's, it's similar to body dysmorphia, except it's related more to gender, right? Some people have dysmorphia about, um, you know, they're too fat, too skinny, too tall, too short, whatever. Um, gender dysphoria is specifically related to gender. I didn't feel it as acutely as I know a lot of other trans people do. And, you know, the, the, the first story that I ever published, um, wasn't even a story as much as it was just a personal essay. And it was called, I had to kill him. Um, and it was about, it was basically a, a letter to my former self, um, apologizing for having to do what I did. Um, in some ways I miss him. And, you know, he, he was a big part of, he was me for, for a very long time. And now he's not, and it's been a few years. And even though it's, even though the time has passed, I still think about him sometimes and I still look at old pictures and I think, man, you got me really far and you protected me for a long time. And I'm grateful. One of the biggest challenges that I believe anyone who truly dislodges these toxic myths is letting go or at least learning to mentally adjust to who and what they were. When I think about the career possibilities that I could have had, the identity that I could have had, had I stayed, it's amazing how fabulous I imagine that it would have been, even though it wasn't. The myth that I needed to dislodge about my identity was exactly that. But there was another one underneath it. I tolerated and lived that way because I believed that the only life that was possible for me was what I call living out an underworld myth. It was the idea that for whatever reason, the universe had destined me to live in hell. So I had to not only dislodge this identity myth, but I had to dislodge the idea underneath it that I was, that there was nothing that ever was, is, or would be about my life that existed out of the underworld of hell that I was living in. That person did get me somewhere. I learned lessons and experienced things because of him. 
Myth is so full of violent death. It represents, as the story of Quanos talks about, change. I think it's so, it's, it speaks deeply to me that that's the name of the story that you wrote or that, that initial, that initial piece that you mentioned a minute ago. And I would even say that there is a mythical component to what you were describing there. That metaphorical killing of something is frightening. Helios, the sun god that I mentioned earlier, was the guardian of oaths because he could see everything. He was the protector of truth. I had to find him within me in order to come out and actually live. Do you feel like there will ever be a day in which the myth that you lived is completely dislodged and in which you are living completely with your truth protected? It's an interesting question. Um, I think that, I mean, I'm very much living my truth today. Um, my life's not perfect. Nobody says, but um, yeah. it's pretty damn good. Um, I don't have a whole lot to complain about. Um, I don't, I really enjoy this metaphor of, um, unlearning toxic myths. Um, and I, I think it's, I don't think it's as much a, you start and then you finish as much as it is the, the way I'm understanding it is a ongoing commitment to, to dislodging those toxic myths, wherever they come from. And the reality is we live in a, we live in a world that is full of toxic myths. Um, whether those are myths about gender myths about, um, you know, how to treat other people, myths about, you know, how to deal with people from other countries or, you know, all sorts of different myths yeah. that are toxic. Um, I'm reminded of the, during the Black Lives Matter protests that were happening June of last year, um, the, ongoing statement was it's not enough to say that you're not racist because you probably are racist and that doesn't mean you're a bad person it just means you grew up in a racist society so how could you not be racist um and so it's not just about saying i'm not racist and then moving on with your life it's about an ongoing commitment to anti-racism to rooting out the racism that exists in your heart and it exists in all of our hearts. It's the same with transphobia. I have transphobic beliefs and I am transgender. How is that possible? Because I grew up in a society that 
distills transphobic ideas into my head. And so with this idea of dislodging toxic myths, that can come down to things like prejudice for sure, but it can also come down to self-limiting beliefs. Um, I can't do that because insert excuse here. The reality is most of the time you can, but it's scary. And, yes. and addressing those fears and working, working through them, understanding where they come from and then dislodging them is, is a very powerful experience. And that's an experience that every trans person who has transitioned has come to terms with. Because I'll tell you, transition was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, and yet, nothing is ever scare, as scary as you think it is in your head, right? You yeah. always build the build everything up and it's so scary and it's yeah. so overwhelming. And oh my God, what if this happens? What if that happens? Yeah. It's possible that ABCDE can happen, but it's very, very unlikely. I'll tell you the first time I, first time I walked out the door wearing a dress, my hand was on the doorknob, my heart pounding against my chest. And I stood there for like 15 minutes, absolutely terrified. And eventually I just said, pardon my French. I just said, fuck it. We're doing this. And I went out and it was really not a big deal. And, you know, it, my experience of transformation is maybe more visually striking than yours, but I think that's the only, um, that's the only real difference between what I've gone through and what you've gone through. And I think that's why we've connected so well over the years, because I see that even though you maybe look the same, from a, you know, you, you, you're still the same gender. Um, but you've still gone through this very powerful inner transformation of taking a look at these toxic myths that you had, dislodging them and realizing this is the only way to get to a better future. This is the only way to find a life with actual purpose behind it. And it was the same with me. I won't lie to you or to anyone that's watching or who's listening. I'm actually having a hard time holding back tears. Me too, man. Because I know. <laughs> Let's just lean into it. Yeah, <laughs> screw it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, you know, and that's a my issue around holding them back, right? That's a toxic myth. Men, I'm very invested in being cisgender. That's one thing I've realized reading your blog. I'm much more invested in that than I ever understood until I started following you. And part of that investment is a toxic myth that I cannot or should not express emotions this way. And I have made a commitment to, to making a change around that. But also it goes as to the power of truly dislodging these myths, of seeing them for what they are, and then taking them away cuts so deeply to our core, that it would be striking away at our very humanity to downplay their emotional impact. And for anyone who is watching or listening to us, that's not something, it may be something that you're afraid of. 
But when I shed a tear, or if I am struggling to hold it back and then later pretending it was just allergies <laughs> or an overdose of caffeine that spilled right beneath my eyes and somehow managed to get it's just clear. a plumbing leak. Exactly, just a plumbing leak. That the fear is still worth it because the other side of that suppression was not being a human, was not being what I was for so long. Monsters are another recurring theme in myths. Too often, I believe, in the public sphere, we turn monsters, we use monster iconography, monster language to discover, to describe and characterize other human beings, which leads to a lot of the cruelty that you talked about earlier, toxic myths about who other people are. Whereas the real monsters and how I view the monsters in these myths are allegories for what's inside. Quanus's was a monster because he ate his children. He was gloriously good-looking, as good-looking as anything could be. But who and what was inside was a monster. He was never able to conquer it. It destroyed him. Sophie, one of the... Uh, we've talked about so much today that I don't remember what I said <laughs> when and how. So I'll just say it again, and, and anyone listening watching, if I said it already, forgive me. One of the things that I will never forget about you is seeing you the very first time. It was at a Chamber of Commerce, National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce event. It was a national event. We were in Philadelphia in this wonderful food hall, and there you were standing. And I'll never forget, you had this hat on, and um, you know, you were there was just something about your face that compelled me to go over and talk to you. And of course, we've been friends ever since a random meeting in Philadelphia. To me, I've come to understand what attracted me to you, what magnetized you to me and other people that get to know you is charisma, inner charisma. I will say when you present, now you can and you do sometimes, but your day-to-day, -day, for instance, in this conversation hasn't been highly theatrical or overly dramatic or anything. It's very sincere. It's very intense with a liberal dose of humor, all of these sorts of things. But the charisma, that thing about you that drew me to you, that makes me remember seeing you that first time years ago, is charisma. We've talked about the myths you've dislodged. Do you feel that that connects to this charisma? The answer seems obvious, but but maybe you'll surprise me. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, th I think that, um, I mean, as you begin to, toxic myths are barriers, right? And, um, you know, any, you know, remove the gender thing for a moment, um, yeah. any life coach, motivational speaker, self-improvement person, whatever you want to call it. Any, anyone that's worth their salt will tell you, you know, follow your dreams, do what you love, make your life into what you want it to be. And it's easy to hear that and say, oh yeah, that sounds great for you, but I can't do that because insert excuse here. 
And yet, <laughs> those are toxic myths, right? Um, and so yeah. when you look more closely at those toxic myths and you begin to remove them, you start to realize it's so much easier to be who you are when, when they're not in the way. And so, you know, when I, when I first started transitioning, I was, um, I don't know if I ever told you this, but it was it, now, now that I'm remembering, we, we met in Philly in 2018, I believe. And yes. that was July or August. I had come out in March of that year. So really? that was five months into my transition. Um, wow. I hadn't even begun taking hormones yet. Um, and it, it, it was, in many ways, I think you saw something in me that I didn't quite see in myself at the time because I was still, you know, you, you go through these times of intense change in, in your life. And there's, there's often a fake it until you make it sort of phrase, phase. And so, you know, I, I was, trying to pull together different elements of, I mean, I had essentially fundamentally dismantled myself and, you know, call me a Lego set. I took the Lego set apart. And as a result, I had a pile of Lego blocks in front of me and it was up to me to decide, okay, that's a brick that's worth keeping this brick, tossing it away. That's not me. Um, and, you know, maybe you had a similar experience as well with, you know, elements of your personality that you built through being a C-suite executive and realizing, okay, well, that life isn't for me, but I learned this thing while I was doing that. And that's going to be useful for me going forward. So I'm going to continue with that um, that idea or that skill or whatever. Um, and so there's, <laughs> when you start to take these barriers down, you find there's less roadblocks to going forward, but at the same time, sometimes it's, it's some mushy, gooey sort of phase where you're, um, you know, everyone uses the metaphor of the butterfly. It's a well-worn metaphor when it comes to personal transformation. And I'm going to be no different. I'm going to use the metaphor of the butterfly as well, where when a caterpillar decides, I don't know how they decide, I'm not an entomologist. Um, whenever they decide it's time to go into the cocoon, they make a cocoon for themselves and they turn into a puddle of goo. Like they don't transform from a caterpillar to a butterfly. They transform a caterpillar to a pile of goo to a butterfly. If you open up a, um, a chrysalis, you will find a puddle of goo inside of it. And that puddle of goo is the caterpillar. And, um, you know, change is not a, it's not a clean, easy process. Um, you might turn into a puddle of goo for a while. I did, but eventually you'll come out the other side. 
I'm reading a book by a um, Harvard mythologist named Gregory, I believe that's his first name, Nagy. And in it, he discusses the concept of Hades, the afterlife in Greek mythology. And one of the things I really had not appreciated until reading this book was that by and large, the Greeks actually viewed Hades as a transitional location. And what that says to me, again, sort of ties what you just said back into what we talked about earlier, the, that essay that you wrote, the first one that you wrote, killing your old self, basically, is that even death itself from a metaphorical perspective, when we think about the transitions that we go through and the caterpillar turning from a caterpillar, I did not know that, into this mush before it emerges as a, as a butterfly. In a way, even that is literally dying to be reborn as something else. Um, death, which is what we fear more than anything, I think most of us, is itself a transitional phase. The worst is that we'll transition somehow into something else. Freedom. We both have chosen to stay with Morpheus from the Matrix. Neither of us have chosen to go back into it and eat the steak. It would be easier, would it not? Why is freedom worth it for you? What has it brought you? Because it's nice to just say, oh, I'm free. Yeah. So what? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it would be easier for me to, to continue with this metaphor, to plug myself back into the matrix. I could not do so. And this is the way my brain is wired. Sometimes much to my chagrin, I just can't do that. Um, I must live my truth. I must be who I am. And there's, 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 it's, there's just no way around it for me. Um, I, I tried to do it for many years. Um, I tried to pretend to be something I was not. And well, clearly it didn't work out for me. Otherwise I would still be a dude with a beard talking with this voice. And so it got to the point where, you know, it, it was, there was no choice. Um, I had to, I had to kill him. That's why I titled my essay that I had to kill him. There was no other option at that point. It's, you know, being trans is not a choice. Choosing to transition is a choice. There are some trans people who for whatever reason, cannot or will not transition. That's okay. Um, that that is a choice. Doesn't make them bad people. Doesn't make them any less valid as trans people. You don't train. You know, I, I did not become a woman once I started wearing makeup and you know taking hormones and dressing no. the way I do. I already was a woman. I just took measures to make 
the outside, all this reflect the inside. Um, if for whatever, if for whatever reason you cannot or will not do that, doesn't make you any less valid. Um, for me, it was no choice. It was very much a, this must happen. Consequences be damned. This must happen. And so, you know, it, it really wasn't a matter of choosing freedom as much as it was just doing what I knew had to be done because I was dying. And there was, there was the other option was to die. And that, as someone who's lived it, we always have a choice, but it wasn't an option. Yeah. Wasn't an option. Myths, as you mentioned earlier when you're talking about Troy, at least according to one theory, as often as not, have roots in history. Talk to us a little bit about your YouTube blog and some things that you're finding out as you research and bring out into a larger public um, platform some of the truths about transgender people in history that, again, as we talked about earlier, ties what some people think might be this radical change firmly into historical traditions. Absolutely. Um, so there are, I try to avoid transphobes. Um, because I just don't have time for that nonsense. I don't have time for people who have devoted their personality towards making other people's lives worse. I just don't have time for it. Yeah. I, I've, I've, you, you can be jerks if you want. I got my life to live. Um, however, <laughs> one of the, um, one of the arguments that I always found painfully ironic was this idea that being trans is just this trendy new thing that the kids do, you know, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's a childish thing. You know, boys pretend to be girls and girls pretend to be boys, just like they might pretend to be a dinosaur or an astronaut or a whatever. But eventually right. they become, they grow up and they become well-adjusted adults and they pay their taxes and they have their white picket fence and they have 2.5 kids and all that stuff. And it's, it's not true. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, the only reason you're seeing more young people coming out as trans is because the language now exists for them to identify as that, as well as society being marginally less hatefully prejudiced against people like us. We can exist in public spaces. Um, there's still a lot of progress to be made, still a lot of mountain to climb, but you look down at the summit and you're like, damn, we've come a long way. Not the summit, the, bottom of the mountain. I don't know. I'm not a mountain climber. Maybe this is a bad, bad yeah. metaphor. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, um, this is an absurd statement. Trans people have always existed for as long as we have historical writings, we have found gender nonconformity of one, um, one stripe or another. And yet most of it is not being told. Um, and a big part of that is because historians by and large and the tradition of history has been old cisgender white men. Um, and 
and usually heterosexual too. Not to say that that makes them bad people, um, but it does mean they have blinders. We all have blinders. I have blinders regarding certain yeah. things. So do you, so does everybody. It doesn't make us bad people. It just makes us people. Um, and that's why diversity of views is so important because you get people in the room who have different experiences in the world and you realize, damn, I do have some blind spots. Those aren't comfortable to address, but they're important to address. Anyway, the, the fact that the historical tradition has mostly been made of cisgender heterosexual white men means that it's viewed through that lens, which means mm. a lot of the stories about that are from a modern reading unambiguously transgender are not being read as transgender because there's just, it, there's not that viewpoint. Um, right. There's, there's a long history as well of um, historians and archeologists erasing queerness. There are, I remember a debate when I was in university over whether or not Sappho was into women. <laughs> Sappho. <laughs> The, the person that we get the term sapphic love from, was she into girls? Let's assemble this panel of white dudes to, 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 to debate it. It's absurd. And yet, um, now we're starting to get more diverse voices in, in history, but like science fiction, it's a fairly new phenomenon to see this. So, um, and so I, I have known these stories um, through my experience in university of studying classics. Um, I did an honor specialization, which means I focused almost solely on classics, did a couple of general history courses, did a couple of astronomy courses, but almost entirely classical studies. And even though, again, with, with one exception, my teachers were all old cishet white guys, um, these trans stories still crept their way into my studies. And so when I hear people saying being trans is just this trendy new thing that the kids are doing, I was like, well, that's not true. But why is nobody telling these stories until I realized, mm -hmm. yeah, nobody's telling these stories and someone's got to do it. So I might as well do it. So, I've got to ask, what are some fascinating little nuggets that we might find out? And is it true? Now, anyone with sensitive ears, this might be the time where you put your little hands over your ears and, and put your knees together and quake a little bit because I'm going to say a word that's a little bit not. Is it true that in one of your episodes, you discuss a relationship between urine <laughs> And impossible gender reassignment. It was the wildest thing. It is so, so wild. You'll have to watch the video to get the full, the full idea. But it, it, it has to do with a culture called the Scythians who lived, um, if, if you're familiar with Genghis Khan and his, his empire, he got his start on the great steppe, same territory, but like a thousand years earlier. Um, and okay. they, we know most about the Scythians who lived around the Black Sea because they lived close to the Greeks and the Scythians mm -hmm. never wrote anything, but the Greeks wrote a lot. And some Greeks went to visit the Scythians and they wrote about them. And through, um, 
our sources. Herodotus is one of the ones who visited them, the grand granddaddy of history, um, considered by many to have been the first, at least in the Western tradition, to have actually written proper history. Um, he mm-hmm. visited the Scythians and wrote about them. We also know pseudo-Hippocrates. Um, if you know the Hippocratic Oath guy, that doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, yada, yada. Same guy. Um, but pseudo-Hippocrates is, um, we have this collection of writings called the Hippocratic Corpus. It's about Hippocratic medicine. It probably wasn't Hippocrates who wrote it, but that's all mm-hmm. we know. So we call it pseudo-Hippocrates because we don't have anything else to call it. Both of these mm-hmm. writers visited the Scythians and described a group of people who lived among the Scythians who were assigned male at birth. They were, you know, born with the sensitive people have their earmuffs on. They were born with a dink, right? And so, Mm -hmm. and they were, they were castrated at likely a young age and served a woman's role in their society. That is Mm -hmm. unambiguously transgender. Those people are unambiguously transgender. However, there is evidence, not conclusive evidence, and it drives me crazy that there's not conclusive evidence, but there mm-hmm. is evidence that they were able to use horse urine in order to go through hormone replacement therapy. We know that the urine of a pregnant horse is one of the most potent places in nature to find estrogen. In fact, the mm-hmm. modern drug Premarin that um, cis, cisgender women will often use it for um, uh, to to ease their menopause symptoms. Um, mm-hmm. It is estrogen, um, and Premarin is just a portmanteau of pregnant mare urine. Premarin, right? And so we know today that pregnant horse urine is a very potent source of natural estrogens. We also know the horse was very important to the Scythians. It shows up in a lot of their art. Mm -hmm. We also know that the Roman poet Ovid, when he was exiled from Rome, he ended up living among the Scythians. And while he Mm -hmm. was there, he wrote about a Scythian, like old hag type of character who Mm -hmm. knew how to distill the active ingredient from pregnant horse urine. So on one hand, we have this evidence um, that we know pregnant horse urine is potent in estrogen. We have this woman who knows how to distill the active ingredient from pregnant horse urine. We have this group of people who were assigned male at birth, who served a woman's role in society, and whom... Both, we have two different sources that go on and on about how effeminate they were. But then we have a gulf in between there. Were they using mm. this pregnant horse urine to, right. to transform their bodies 2,500 years ago? I wish we had an answer to that. The answer is maybe it's a stretch, but it's not a huge one, but we don't have the evidence. And But even that aside, there is still crystal clear evidence of trans people existing 500 years before the Bible was written. 
so interesting. <laughs> and it, it, this series, as it comes out, I, I think is going to be very enduring and, and speak to a lot of people so. for a number of reasons. Thank you for sharing that with us. Sophie, after all of this conversation, folks are going to want to know where they can find out about you. Tell us. Absolutely. So, um, all of my links are on my website, sbedwards.co. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram at queer.trans.writer.sophie. I'm very subtle. I'm also an SEO. Can you tell? <laughs> um, you can also follow me on Twitter at SBE Likes Words and on YouTube. My YouTube channel is called SB Edwards. And it's well worth doing. Sophie, it's been great taking a ride with you today. Thank you for joining us. And for everyone tuning in, if you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple or a comment on YouTube. And see you next time for another trip down the Purpose Highway. When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's Nola, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's Nola crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's Nola's delightful bites come in three flavors, luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala and dark decadent chewy chocolate it's nola is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com that's i-t-s-n-o-l-a.com guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack check out it's nola's website for yourself and find out how good it is.